Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about Media Science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. Today we have as our special guest, Dr. Radha Subramanian, who is the Chief Research and Analytics Officer at CBS. This is going to be a fascinating interview. Radha's career covers all kinds of interesting intersections between TV, digital, big data, consumer insights research. There's just so much to unpack as we look at Radha's career. So Radha, welcome to Legends of Media Research. Thank you so much for having me. So Radha, let's start at the very beginning. What's a little unusual about you is most of our legends actually did not study for or plan for a career in media. Usually the pattern has been that they've studied for something else, maybe a career in art curation, and then they crossed over into the media industry. But in your case, studying and engaging in research in the media sphere was specifically what you set out to do. Why was that? What is the background to that story? So again, uh, thank you so much for having me. I've wanted to work in media since I was probably 13 years old. And so I've always been on that path and that's sort of been the North Star. But I will say that I didn't really think of doing research in media till much later. So I was in graduate school at Northwestern. I wasn't even sure, I think, when I started if I was going to get a PhD or not, but I did take to it like a fish to water. It just felt a natural fit for someone who really likes creative businesses, but is extremely analytical and loves thinking through problems. So it was just one of those things that wasn't intended but I fell into it because it was so natural and ultimately opened up a lot of potential. So after I got my doctorate, I started off like many people do, like you did yourself as an actual academic. But I realized very quickly that I liked all the things academia did, but at a different speed and with a different kind of impact than you can get to in an academic role. So I still like the kind of thinking, the big ideas, the proving out of hypotheses, but I needed them at a different pace, a pace that was in weeks and months and days, not in years. And that's why moving from academia into the world of media that I've loved my whole life made so much sense. You know, that is so true. In in my days as an academic, my research center, which was, you know, world-class, we were the, the leader in our particular sphere, I remember we would do four studies a year. And by academic standards, that was considered lightning speed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> then you compare it and contrast it with industry where studies are, are more daily or a weekly kind of like occurrence. The pace of insight is, is, is very different. But how do you think that that academic training changed the way that you view the world, if you will, now with that academic lens that you brought into your career? Right. So I'm going to give you a twofold answer to that. I think the thing that academic training does for you is it really wires your mind 
to think deeply and to think through really complex issues. So when I look back on my academic training, it wasn't about this class or that class, this research project or this other research project. It really was about the ability to engage in a brand new area, learn everything that you can access pretty easily in that area, but then move it forward and help generate ideas or products that are new and haven't been thought of before. So I might be being a little simplistic here, but I really think of it in the context of fitness training and weightlifting, right? I really think about it as building the muscle. And then with that muscle, yes, you can lift a weight in a studio, or you can lift a suitcase, or you can lift an emotional weight. But I think of it really as training me to be thinking, both deeply lift heavy weights, but also flexibly, right? And yes, there are some specific things you learn around methodology, whether it's survey methodology, whether it's data crunching and analytics, whether it's ethnography or something that allows you to deal with humans at almost a one-on-one -on -one level. There are pieces of methodology you pick up along the way. But I think what I take away is the ability to think through hairy issues and being able to say with a degree of conviction what it all means. Yeah, um, I think another part of that for you, Rada, for any academic really, is that, you know, one of the hardest things about the PhD research in particular, those PhD years, is that unlike traditional classes where you have a textbook which lays everything out for you in very pretty language, you know, in those PhD years, you read journal articles. I mean, I remember we'd read 800 pages of journal articles a week. And reading a journal article is very different from reading a book. You learn to look at an article with a critical eye, what's the design, what kind of analysis was used. You're reading it very differently to reading something that's very heavily processed like a textbook. That's a certain skill that you develop. And the way that I think in, in your particular career, that is translated is in the the critical skills that you bring to evaluating a report to evaluating a proposal by a research vendor you know you look at the industry with a more critical perspective than perhaps a typical executive and i think that that academic training is part of the reason why you've you know developed that skill set in a way that many may fear but at the end of the day that kind of accountability is is a good thing for any company right so absolutely and i will push that analogy a little bit further right so on the one hand when you read a journal article uh, or even an academic book you understand that this is written by one human or a group of humans at one point in time and all of those circumstances impact the piece of work that is in front of you. On the side, you also have primary sources. When you're an academic, they can be historical. If you're in the sciences, it can be something that's coming out of your lab, et cetera, right? And so I find that very analogous to my work. There is what the media says, there's what people say, there's what other people in the industry say, but I also have primary sources. I have right. my actual content. I have how people are reacting to my content. I have many data sources about my content, whether it's social media analytics or digital analytics or primary research or ratings. And what I'm doing with all of that is coming up with 
the analogy would be a new piece of academic research. So take all of these inputs, but move the field forward. That's what we try to all do as academics. And that's what I try to do in my job every day, which is take all of these inputs that are immensely meaningful and helpful, but then try to generate an insight that pushes thinking forward and is action. Yeah, this triangulation of truth that you're not looking for the one piece of truth that will tell, you know, the story that you want to tell. You're really looking at trying to get at that truth by triangulating your data sources. Um, I will add one other thing that I learned as an academic, which doesn't very often get talked about, the teaching aspect of it, right? The teaching aspect of it taught me a couple really important things. One is the communication side. I taught a lot of undergraduates when I started, right? So you take really complex ideas and learn to articulate them very clearly and concisely. And that's a great skill I learned as an academic. And the other piece of it is confidence. Because when you're an academic and you have classes, yes, sometimes they're small, but you also can have 400 students. You learn to speak to a lot of people and you learn to modulate and communicate the content in a way that's accessible to all of your constituencies. And that's something that served me very well as an So you left academia very early in your years after getting your PhD, just a few years afterwards, and then you transitioned into industry and you started really your first decade. And, and let's talk about it like that as decades. Um, so you started off in your first decade as a, a TV researcher. You, you had that position first at NBC and then you moved on to Viacom. So let's talk about those TV years and what you learned as a researcher. Right. So at least back in the day, and perhaps you know a little bit today, seeing where I work today, to me, TV has almost been the center of all, right? It's not about the delivery mechanism, but it's about what TV does, which is tell great stories with sight, sound, and motion, bring people up to date on the latest news and happenings in their world, you provide the latest, greatest sporting events, but basically touch people on the various things they're passionate about. So TV was, you know, where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I had many opportunities across both NBC and, and the earlier iteration of Viacom when I was here the first time, where it was about insights and data, but how they could make the TV product better. So I remember just from simple things like minute by minute ratings, being able to see something like, oh, the adoption segment uh, of Stray Dogs on Fridays did incredibly well. So let's do more of that and systematize that, which, by the way, is both good for the world and good for the business. So what I really learned was to synthesize learnings where they came through focus groups, surveys, ratings or another form of analytics and use that data to make the product better, to make the talent better, and to make TV relate even better to its audience. You then moved on to positions at Yahoo first, Nielsen, and that Nielsen-McKinsey hybrid, if you will, the years with iHeartMedia, you know. Those years we'll call your second decade, uh, more or less. And, and that was really a period where you were 
exploring the world of digital, of social, and really your first encounters perhaps with what we might think of as big data. Let's talk about that period in your career and what yeah. you learned, particularly as you transitioned from traditional TV to these, you know, these different media forms. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is it was a very conscious decision, right? I've always loved TV. I always wanted to be in TV. It's what I am so incredibly passionate about. But I also knew that if I just stayed in that bubble, I wouldn't learn enough. And while I couldn't articulate it the same way as I can today, I knew that TV itself was morphing and changing and in a sense being digitized. And so I knew that I would have to really open the aperture and learn new skills to make even coming back to TV much more useful. So let me talk to you about a lot of what I learned, right? So in my early years in digital, that's when I was learning product from the ground up. That's when I was learning search from the ground up. That's when I learned that, you know, homepages could be personalized and there could be a one-to-one media experience. I learned about early big data and I learned both about where it needed to be bespoke or custom and where it can or should be productized. I was lucky enough to get into social very, very early and I learned to have some rigor around what it's useful for. You know, when I when I was early in social, it was always about, let's look at social for the next billion dollar idea. And I came away from that learning that it's not that simple, that you have to be very surgical and methodical about how you use social and what you use it for. So uh, I learned to be very comfortable with digital and how audiences flow, how to be methodical and rigorous in my thinking about social and how to apply it and also where to ignore it. And then through the great experiences I had over at iHeart, which is also, you know, being part of the team that launched the early apps and subscriber services over there, I learned to really think about subscription models. And I learned to think about alternate currencies. How do you use existing currencies? How do you marry them with big data? Put all of that together to come up with the absolute best KPIs or measures for your business. I realized that I packed a lot in there. Uh, It was a decade. It was a decade where I perhaps learned the most and had a lot of fun. But what I realized is there are many threads of analytics and many research methodologies that were happening in parallel to TV that TV ultimately could benefit from because TV was holding on to what's great about TV and becoming more than what it used to be in the prior century. And I joke about how I probably couldn't do the job that I have. The the, the job I've wanted my whole life is an incredible privilege to be the chief research officer of CBS, uh, number one network in the U.S. for, you know, uh, I can't even count how many years in a row. Um, But I also feel that if I limited my experience to TV alone and I hadn't explored big data, I hadn't explored sound, I hadn't explored social and digital, I wouldn't be as empowered and able to do my job today if I hadn't had all those experiences. And then, of course, you came into, as you describe it, this dream role for you, you know, this this career aspiration, really, this role at, at CBS 
tell us now about that job. Tell us what it is that you do day to day and what you've been learning in that role since coming into that role. Absolutely. And the first thing I want to say, it is incredibly an honor and a privilege to have this role because you feel that you are safeguarding and carrying on a lot of history, a lot of history and in insights and research, but also such a great brand and a great network. So th this alone, the CBS journey alone or the CBS processes alone could be an entire podcast. I so would we'll have to do that again someday. But let me just share a little bit about what I think is useful to your audience from the CBS experience, right? So when I go to a lot of conferences, people always talk about data versus creative. And they talk about how, as a data person, do you impact creative? And what I'm so delighted to say is that if you're a truly great creative, those binaries don't exist. The truly great creatives know that data makes creative better. So we're very deeply involved with all of our creative partners here because they know that we all share the same goals. We want to make the biggest, best shows out there. And we want to get it to the widest swath of audiences. And so the biggest takeaway or learning from my job is to go out there and tell people that versus is a bad word, right? It's about together. It's about together, stronger, better, and how data and creative very much need each other to thrive and have impact. So that's a huge piece of what I would love the world to know about the role today and the role at CBS. Uh, the other thing, which is also another false binary that I think we should put to the side, is this whole linear versus streaming. There is no linear versus streaming. It's about the content that we're making available to people in the places that serves them best. So the biggest shows on linear TV are often the biggest shows on streaming TV, both on and off CBS. Young Sheldon is a number one thing on Netflix right now in terms of hours and minutes, right? So again, instead of having a false binary on linear versus streaming, we get people focused back on great experiences and great content and making them available in all kinds of ways. And then the role of the researcher is also to sort of add all that back and communicate that back. So I think the biggest learning is, again, from CBS is it's not about versus, it's about together. Oh, that's beautiful. That's very inspiring. So now that we've talked about the breadth of your career, let's dive in to some of these things that you've already alluded to and, and, and even what we've discussed so far. Let's drill down a little bit deeper and understand kind of like with more depth some of the things that you've been talking about. So let's first start with what you have learned about this relationship between television and digital. Yeah, so first of all, television and digital are not really consumer words, right? Consumer words are I like this show and I may like it on this brand or this platform. That's more consumer language. But we've learned a few things. A few things are, you know, we've learned that good shows are good shows. And good shows thrive across all of these and the different ways they have to get into people's homes. So NCIS is, you know, huge, giant, 
franchise, family, whatever you call it. And, you know, we've also learned how globally portable it is. The takeaway there is that, you know, we have these almost limited views on what great content can do, but then the content shows us how it travels globally and how global versions can come back here as well. And how a family like NCIS could be on CBS, could be on a range of cable networks and broadcast stations, and be on SVOD, and be on AVOD, and have all of these lives simultaneously. And that's true for NCIS, but it's also true for something that's been the CBS family forever, which is Gunsmoke. People watch Gunsmoke all the time on linear and other places that are not linear, right? So you really learn about the great content and it's almost not multiple lives, but it's multifaceted life that it can embrace at the same time. The other thing we've learned is, you know, people talk about generations and, oh, how young people are so different from boomers and things like that. And we've also learned to put some of those myths to So what we've learned is that the median age in streaming is about 25 years younger, 20, 25 years younger than linear. But the top shows are the top shows, right? So yes, people who are younger are accessing it through a different pipe, but they still love the same show. So Ghosts and Fire Country, which were two new shows that we've launched in a couple of years, are huge on streaming and some of the biggest numbers in streaming. But again, uh, there is a median age difference. So what we are learning is to, at least at CBS, is to make these big shows for the biggest tent across segments of the American population and TV viewers and to not force them to behave a certain way. What I mean by that is let a 55-year-old access them from a specific access point. Let a 25-year-old access them from a different access point. Is TV dying? Of course TV is not dying. TV is thriving. If you add up all the hours of TV, and by TV I mean scripted premium content that people are watching globally, it grows every single year. And then you throw in sports and then you throw in news And you find that TV continues to grow and thrive. But if you try to put TV in a box, which is only this kind of content on this kind of box that's delivered through this pipe, you know, you could make a story like that. But again, viewers don't think of it in terms of pipes or boxes or delivery mechanisms. They think of the content they love. They think about new sports and entertainment and the role of high quality, high production value new sports and entertainment is only growing. CBS had its most viewed NFL season this year since we've had the NFL in these uh, specific slots since 1998, right? Huge year-over-year growth, huge record-breaking. And again, we're you know, launching some of the biggest entertainment shows as well. So I would say that some of the measures that people look at outside of these businesses might be dated, but the actual content continues to grow. How has the business of media research changed across your career? Obviously, you would have seen a lot of differences in how you practice today versus how the the world was practicing media research, you know, when you started your career in the industry. How do you think the business of media research has changed? 
So that's a great question, because when you and I were talking, you know, we really wanted to share with the audience lessons learned and ways of doing research better. So I will say the biggest change is there was a much more limited tool when I started in the business, right? So you had ratings, you had focus groups, you had survey research, and you had a few other things. But we have so many more toys to play right? Or rather, so many more ways of deriving insights, whether it's all of the advances in neuro insights that, again, we could spend a lot of time talking about, new technologies, whether it's eye tracking or some other form of tracking that really looks at behaviors, or the preponderance of big data, both social and not. So what I will say is that you went from a relatively limited toolkit to an almost unlimited toolkit. But what hasn't changed is the need for the researcher at the center of all of it, right? Because data points are data points. But the role of the researcher is to synthesize all of these and to go from synthesizing, say, three or four sources to, say, synthesizing 100 sources but then making meaning for the company. And the meaning manifests as how do I make this show better or how do I market this better or something to that effect. So the role of the researcher as the keeper of the audience insight and input who translates that back to a corporation hasn't changed. It's just become perhaps much more complex for some people, but in my view, just much more interesting. You know, let's talk a little bit more about that because I think you're really touching on an issue or or both an opportunity and a challenge, if you will. So here we are, we're in a world where the number of tools has multiplied exponentially. No question about that, right? The tools available to us as researchers are almost infinite today, but, you know, something that's been lost in that process, I think, has been this focus on the integrity of those measures. You know, in a world where new measures come out all the time, the same kind of scrutiny, the same kind of validation. You know, as an industry, we used to aspire to science, I think, much more. And now I think we aspire a little bit more to tech. It's like there's new tech all the time and we get excited by that tech, but we just don't come to it with the kind of scrutiny. I mean, remember the kinds of debates we've had since the 80s about, you know, the integrity of the Nielsen panel. I mean, we would get really very detailed debates about a very, very, very specific measure. And that kind of debate doesn't exist kind of the same way today. And it worries me because Yes, there are a lot of tools. Yes, there's a lot of data. But I hear people talk about something being good enough, and it always concerns me because that should not be our aspiration. Our aspiration should be truth. It shouldn't be, was it good enough to get us to put it up in a PowerPoint presentation and have somebody pat us on the back and say that was a good job. And Rada, I know that particularly given your academic experience, that this is the kind of issue that really gets under your skin. <laughs> so maybe we could talk a little bit about this need for greater integrity in the measures that we bring to market. Right. So I'm going to humanize this a little bit, right? So people have a lot of change thrown at them all the time. 
And it's very easy to run after the shiniest, newest object or the one that your boss is asking you about, right? But when you do that, you are operating from a position of fear and reactiveness. That may work in the short it may make your inbox a little bit less full if you answer these questions, you know, easily or glibly, right? But over time, that doesn't work because over time, you are responsible for research that is not about looking good on PowerPoint, but that's actually about moving the needle and moving the enterprise forward, right? So when you're someone like me, Maybe it's because of my academic background. Maybe it's because of the range of experience I've had. But it actually is quite easy for me to not get distracted, right? I can be open to a lot of methodologies and a lot of input, but I know how to hold them up to the test of rigor and the test of integrity. And the only pieces that I will bring back to the enterprise are the pieces that stand that test and will stand the rigors of time. But I also understand that it's easier for people who are seasoned, seasoned academics or seasoned executives to do that. And I also deeply empathize that if you don't have that confidence yet and you're earlier in your career, that can be challenging. But I would just tell you to A, have faith in yourself, right? Just because... Someone says something doesn't make it true. So have faith in yourself. And also, there are no stupid questions. Ask the questions of the latest methodology. Ask the question of the person who's pitching the latest idea to you. And ultimately, I'm a great believer in the sniff test or common sense. If something doesn't smell right or sit right, it's probably not right. Right. So I understand that it calls for a great degree of conviction and self-confidence, but that's why we are in these roles. And so I would just ask people to not get distracted, to find their inner strength and also know that nobody knows your business as well as you. do. So you know the right questions to ask for your piece of the world. So just believe in that and believe in yourself and try to operate from a position of openness, be willing to learn new things, be willing to suspend disbelief to a certain extent, be willing to acknowledge if things that you thought were a certain way aren't anymore, but don't operate from a position of fear ever because fear never made for great research. So another part of your journey, I think really was this relatively early encounter with big data. And of course, across your career, you've seen this interchange between, you know, more conventional consumer insights based methods, you know, based on panels often, for example, versus big data. So tell us, what is it that you've learned in this interchange between big data and more conventional approaches to consumer insights? So I will go back to a word you used earlier, which is triangulation, right? So there are a lot of debates about this is right and that is right. It's, it's back to the whole versus thing that I'm not a big believer in, right? 
I believe that only big data can give you certain kind of insights. But whether they are representative or not, whether they're projectable or not, depends on sampling, to use an old-fashioned research term, right? So again, in my work, that's the balance, right? I'm always triangulating or balancing or reconciling something that is panel or otherwise sampled and representative with something that is bigger or deeper and using them together appropriately. So when I look at a specific show, it's the combination of big data with conventional metrics that tells me the true story or the fullest story, but it takes a lot of experience and a lot of clear thinking to get to that point, to be able to pull the right thing from the big data and the right thing from the panel or something. And tell us more about how your experience with research has been harnessed to the benefit of creative. You know, you talked earlier about how really good creative, these are people who actually value research. So tell us a little bit more about how you harness that research to the benefit of creative. So my programming peers, my creative peers, are my best collaborators and friends in this business. They're people I talk to every single day. And again, this would be a podcast unto itself, but we work on shows. We work on the arc of a show. We work on characters. We work on whether something is dragging on too long or if it needs to go deeper. We work on colors. We work on where the eye is looking and communicate all this back at a very granular level, often at the episodic level to the people who are architecting these pieces of creative. But then we also help people figure out what show pairs best with what show and therefore where or how should it be scheduled? How is it performing? What are the audience segments it can and should be marketed to? Whether that is landing appropriately and what the right creative is for the right segment that you are trying to market to. And ultimately, how are all of these efforts together yielding in terms of digital or traditional metrics? So again, it's about being the partner and the shepherd of the creative with coming at it with good intent, coming at it with wanting success for the team that you are part of and helping them get it to the best biggest show and helping measure its performance along. Now, Rada, we close every interview with a single question. And that question is, what recommendations would you have for people who are entering into the industry today? It's a great question, right? And something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So my advice would be, you know, learn about the methodologies of the day. Learn enough about big data and social analytics and traditional research. But also know that through the course of your career, which God willing is 30, 40, 50 years long, you will be reinventing how you do this many, many times. So start with a strong foundation, but then know that you're going to pivot and change along the way 
be flexible and nimble, but also had enough faith in yourself that you can see what is truly an innovation that's additive versus what is a flash in the pan that is quite simply flashy. So it's a combination of open-mindedness, rigor, confidence, and creativity. That's fantastic advice. Thank you, Rada. Well, Rada, what a career. What an amazing job you have. You know, what amazing insights you bring to the market. Thank you so much for your contributions to our industry. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the audience for joining us today on Legends of Media Research. Don't forget to tune into our next episode. And if you'd like to hear a message from Media Science, stay tuned till the end of the episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Dwayne Vron, CEO of Media Science, thanking you for joining us today. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods, or program context effects, or brand integrations, or pause ads, or picture-in-picture -picture ads, or six-second ads, or interactive ad formats. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by Media Science. Media Science is the leader in media innovation research. So when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with Media Science. Learn more at mediascience.com.